Thank you for joining me for this episode of Lessons from Lab and Life. I'm your host, Lydia Morrison, and I hope that our podcast offers you some new perspective. Today's lesson is all about tenacity, and I'm joined by NEB scientist Becky Kusera, who will emphasize this lesson through the story of what Carrie Mullis and PCR have taught her about life. Today, I'm joined by Becky Kusera, Applications and Product Development Scientist at NEB. Thanks so much for speaking with me today, Becky. Thanks for having me. So could you please tell our listeners how long you've worked at New England Biolabs? I've actually been here for 30 years now. I started out in production working with DNA polymerases, but then had wonderful time in research, and now I've been in products and applications development for quite a while. Before that, I was in academic science for 10 years, and you know, I'm very thankful that even after four decades of working at the bench, it's still exciting to come to work every morning. And today, you're here with me to tell the story of how the polymerase chain reaction, better known as PCR, was invented. Firstly, can you explain what PCR is for our listeners who aren't biochemists? PCR is short for polymerase chain reaction, and it's a technique using a polymerase to make exponentially increasing copies of a specific region of DNA you care about, starting from that very small amount in a type of chain reaction. You can think of it as molecular DNA Xeroxing. And the reason for having these large numbers of copies is that having those large numbers allows scientists to have enough for all kinds of crucial analysis that just aren't possible when that important DNA sequence is buried amongst a very large amount of complex DNA when it's literally a needle in a haystack. Now, PCR requires certain things to make those copies. It requires DNA starting material, of course, and the small building blocks of DNA called deoxynucleotides that become the familiar A, C, G, and T bases of DNA. You also need short pieces of DNA called primers that mark the beginning and end of the DNA sequence that you care about and a DNA polymerase that uses those individual building blocks to extend those primers into making completely new DNA copies. Now, this isn't all done at once. Instead, PCR uses about 30 cycles of switching to temperatures that favor double-stranded DNA to literally be pulled apart, allowing the primers at a different temperature to anneal to what is now the single-stranded DNA at the beginning and end. And then the polymerase finds those primer ends and reads the template strand and expands that primer into a full copy of that DNA template. So where once there was one copy of, say, a gene, now you have two. And the next cycle, you have four copies, and then eight copies, and then 16 copies, and on and on. It's such a powerful technique because this doubling with every cycle means 10 cycles will take one copy and turn it into 1,000. 30 cycles turns it into a billion. That's an incredible powerful technique and absolutely is a chain reaction on a molecular level. And how was PCR used over the next 20 years or so? Well, it was very interesting. The research community responded so quickly to the potential of this technique. It was put to work in so many different ways, and it was really, really exciting time. It allowed medical diagnostics. It allowed research focusing on specific gene mutations that were linked to certain diseases in the research labs. It even increased food safety because for the first time we could identify easily bacteria or fungal contaminants that are on the surface of foods that are detrimental to human health. 
health. It even gave us information on the history of life itself because all of a sudden we had a way to make copies and sequence the DNA from such ancient animals and plants preserved in amber that had been unavailable to us as they sat in that amber for hundreds of millions of years. And PCR also became a powerful tool in forensics, leading to the apprehension of a lot of bad guys, also to ending false imprisonment of people who were innocent. In fact, I remember one of the the earliest crime-fighting cases solved through PCR tied a suspect in an Arizona murder case to his victim's body that was found under a Palo Verde tree in California through PCR that was done on seed pods from the tree that fell into the bed of his truck. Have there been any further developments to PCR? Oh, absolutely. Science never stands still. For polymerases, what came next was a discovery of very accurate so-called proofreading DNA polymerases that made fewer mistakes when they were making those DNA copies, and then mixes of DNA polymerases, each having its strengths and weaknesses, and functionally they would complement each other in a positive way during PCR. Then came specifically engineered DNA polymerases where changes in a gene would be designed to alter the amino acids making up the polymerase in a very specific way to gain a certain functionality that was sought. Now, in addition to changes in DNA polymerases, there were also changes in the process itself. PCR developed into qPCR, sometimes called real-time quantitative PCR, that allows exact determinations of how much of the certain DNA sequence is present. And this can be very useful when the level of an infectious agent's DNA, like a bacterial cell's DNA, correlates with the seriousness of the disease. And also, digital PCR was the last development, and that detects low-abundance DNA variants to be detected amongst a vast excess of DNA having the normal sequence. So imagine this. A medical researcher could find a small amount of DNA released from a single dying tumor cell in a person's bloodstream, even when it's pretty much a needle in the haystack again in terms of all the normal sequence DNA around. So this is a really hot area right now in science, as you can imagine, as it would be so great to be able to screen for many different serious health challenges from a single, easy-to-obtain blood sample early enough for effective treatments to be started. So what are the events that came together to enable the development of PCR? Well, like most things, it did start with a great idea, in this case from the mind of Carrie Mullis, but it rose from just a useful technique to a useful technique that was found in every molecular biological lab in the world because of two additional things. A wonderful heat-loving polymerase called TAC DNA polymerase from a bacterium that flourished in the hot springs of Yellowstone and a piece of equipment called the thermal cycler. So it was mostly a good idea, but also a hot springs enzyme and a new laboratory device. So I've heard a lot of stories about Carrie Mullis. Can you tell us how he came up with the concept of PCR? Carrie is a very charismatic individual, according to anyone who has been able to meet him. And he related the story of PCR's discovery in a really entertaining article in an issue that was published in Scientific American in 1990. It's really kind of become kind of a legend since then. The story goes he was working in the San Francisco area back in 1983, and on weekends he would regularly drive his little Honda Civic up to Mendocino County, Redwoods area, to kind of get away from the lab and relax a bit, recharge his batteries. 
One late night, as he was driving up Route 101 with a friend named Jennifer on a very familiar stretch of road with little traffic, his mind wandered into the current lab project challenges he was facing, where he needed a way to identify what nucleotide was present at a certain position in a person's genomic DNA. And remember, this was way before genomic DNA sequencing was possible. That would come much later. For Carey, the early ideas of PCR started coalescing in his mind so suddenly he actually pulled over to the side of the road to focus on the mathematics of that DNA copying without getting in an accident. And when he realized the process could theoretically lead to millions and billions of copies, he woke Jennifer up and enthusiastically told her about his idea. And Jennifer was reportedly not impressed at being awakened in the middle of the night and promptly went back to sleep. But he was persistent. The following Monday, back at the lab, his colleagues were also skeptical. But he just didn't let it go. Instead, he put all of his energy into designing the early PCR experiments that would prove the method worked, which they eventually did in a very clear-cut manner. And even at later scientific meetings, when he would describe his theory of PCR and actually have early experimental data to back it up, the discussion still didn't go well. Sometimes, allegedly, it came close to actual physical altercations. And you have to understand that this is not how scientists are supposed to behave, who are supposed to be always rational and show respect for the ideas of others. And one can't help but wonder whether part of the problem was people thinking, if it was that simple, why wouldn't someone else have already discovered it by now? And after facing such harsh criticism of his new idea, what attributes of Carey's personality do you think led him to be able to continue his efforts to win over the scientific community? Carey absolutely believed his data and was extremely tenacious. Some might say arrogantly stubborn in believing in that idea and his data that came from his early experiments. His tenacity was such that when he was met with the skepticism of others and outright rejection in some cases, it just didn't stop him. The second event you mentioned was the discovery of TAC DNA polymerase. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Early PCR required a person to stand by and add a DNA polymerase called the Klenow fragment with each cycle because of high temperatures that you needed earlier in the cycle to pull that double-stranded DNA apart would heat and activate or kill the polymerase. Standing by and manually adding fresh enzyme in every cycle became very, very tedious. It quickly became clear that what was needed was an enzyme that could handle the high temperatures of PCR. And where better to look for such an enzyme than in the bacteria that normally grow in very hot areas of our planet? As luck would have it, earlier in 1969, a scientist named Tom Brock was working on understanding how living bacterial cells managed to survive and actually thrive at extreme temperatures like those in the hot springs of Yellowstone. In these hot springs, he discovered a bacterium called Thermus aquaticus, which translates to living in hot water. And in 1976, another scientist named Alice Chen isolated and characterized on a small scale the enzyme that would come to be called TAC DNA polymerase. And that polymerase was able to tolerate temperatures up to 95 degrees C, very close to boiling water temperatures, perfect for PCR, although it hadn't been discovered by Carey yet. It was just very fortunate that when PCR did come along, TAC DNA polymerase was waiting in the wings, so to speak. 
the PCR-driven need for a thermostable enzyme really focused attention fast on the potential of TAC. Were all new enzymes discovered like that in the early days? In a way, yes. Remember, this was way before the present age of bioinformatics and data mining from sequenced genomes. In those early days, new enzymes were discovered from the environment, from all kinds of environments, like the Yellowstone Hot Springs. In fact, at NEB, employees returning from vacations took scrapings from the bottoms of their shoes or boots and gave them to the enzyme discovery group at the company. They would dilute the scrapings, spread it out onto an agarose nutrient plate, and wait to see what new and interesting bacterial colonies might grow on the plate overnight. And sometimes, if they were lucky, these new bacteria would show new and useful enzyme activities. Our new enzymes came from all over the place. One came from a scientist's brother's backyard in Minnesota, while another one came from a waterfall in Colorado where animals tended to gather and, well, poop in the water. But one could argue one of the most important sources for a new enzyme was at Hot Springs in Yellowstone. So I know you were working at the bench at NEB during the development of PCR. Could you tell us what that was like? Oh, it was, it was crazy and exciting and a little bit exhausting. The funny thing is, every new person on the TAC DNA polymerase team would do exactly the same thing. They'd pull out their yellow pads of paper and grab a pencil and draw out all the steps of PCR to convince themselves that, my goodness, this could actually work. Then it was all about the challenge of purifying it on a large scale. The phone was ringing quite a bit in those days, mostly academic scientists who wanted to get their hands on TAC DNA polymerase so they could do PCR, and the enzyme wasn't cloned at the time. There were a lot of challenges. Getting large fermentation yields of the bacterial cells themselves were difficult to come by, plus there were no easy ways to purify the polymerase on a large scale, even if you had the cells. Scientists worked oftentimes way past midnight and weekends. And I remember one Christmas where three of us were at the lab joking that this wasn't exactly where we expected to be on Christmas Day. You see, nowadays the purification of enzymes from bacterial cells is more straightforward, but it wasn't back then. And purifying any one enzyme requires a way to separate that enzyme from the hundreds of other enzymes and cellular material present in any bacterial cell. So little was known about all the individual enzymes that were attempting to be purified at the time that oftentimes it was just a matter of trying one thing after another, which would be pouring lysed or broken open bacterial cells over a material packed in a cylinder. This would be called a chromatography column. And hopefully that chromatography material would bind your enzyme while everything else flowed through the column allowing you to then add something like high salt to release your enzyme from the column, and you would have achieved a level of purification from that single chromatography step. And for any one enzyme, it would take two, three, four columns all the way up to 10 or 15 to get an enzyme like TAC polymerase purified enough for PCR applications. But we did it. In March of 87, New England Biolabs was the very first company to have TAC DNA polymerase available to scientists. And believe me, it took a village to accomplish that. The need was so great that sometimes there was just one day between one batch of polymerase being sold out and the next batch passing quality control. We all worked very hard, but looking back on it, I think we really benefited from a sense of real camaraderie that occurs whenever people are working together on a common goal. It must have been so amazing to be a part of that team. 
It certainly was. I enjoyed it. So that was how the first naturally occurring thermophilic DNA polymerase became available for PCR. How did that lead to a race to develop and produce a recombinant form of the enzyme? Well, to answer that question, we need to understand why you want to clone an enzyme in the first place instead of just using the one produced from its natural source. And the answer is to gain convenience and reliability. Not all species of bacteria can be easily grown in the lab, either because the right nutrients aren't identified or they're there but at the wrong levels or the oxygen level isn't right or the temperature needs are extreme, like that of Thermus aquaticus. However, there's one bacterium that is well-characterized, well-behaved, almost always, and has become the real workhorse of molecular biology. And that bacterium is Escherichia coli, or E. coli for short. This is a laboratory strain derived from the harmless E. coli found in the intestinal tract of all warm-blooded animals, including humans. Now, E. coli for lab use has also been intentionally weakened in such a way that it can't grow outside of the laboratory environment. And this gives us an extra level of safety. And while we're talking about safety, it's important to realize this is not the 0157H7 strain that sometimes makes the headlines for making people seriously sick. That strain of E. coli only became dangerous because it was infected by a virus called a bacteriophage that incorporated its gene for a really bad toxin into the E. coli bacterium. Cloning any gene into E. coli allows us to have this very reliable bacterial strain do all the work of transcribing the clone gene into messenger RNA and translating that RNA into the protein, in this case, the enzyme TAC DNA polymerase. So all we have to do is harvest the bacteria and purify the enzyme. And since E. coli reproduces by one cell, dividing into two every 20 minutes or so, its own kind of chain reaction, a single cell can lead to a million cells within seven hours. So not only does it grow fast, it isn't fussy in terms of the nutrients it needs to grow. They're not expensive. They're not complicated. It doesn't care whether oxygen is present or not. And it grows at a much more reasonable temperature of 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit body temperatures. This is in contrast to Thermus aquaticus bacteria that requires a temperature around 176 degrees Fahrenheit, which is hard to maintain in a laboratory. So there are some very, very good reasons everyone wanted to clone TAC polymerase, and that particular race was won by Francis Lawyer at Cetus in 1988. The last element you mentioned that brought PCR to fruition was the development of the thermocycler. Can you tell me about the impact that invention had? Uh, that was the final enhancement that led to the explosive growth of PCR. A thermocycler is simply an instrument that allows you to set temperatures and times for the stages of a PCR cycle, a number of cycles you want to use, and even how long you want the reaction held at a nice, cold, stable temperature until it's convenient for you to work with those DNA copies. Now, to fully appreciate this, you need to understand that before thermocyclers, People in water baths were the thermocyclers. Oh, you would stand at your lab bench in front of three water baths set at the three temperatures needed for the three stages of PCR, and at intervals of about a minute or so, you would reach in and manually move the tube from one water bath to the next one. And this would go on for about four hours. It got old 
really fast. At NEB, everyone knew when I was doing a PCR because I'd be very grouchy by the end of the day. Thermocyclers changed all of that. And according to the salesperson who sold us our first thermocycler, we had one of the very first ones in the United States. And no one at NEB was happier about that than me. No more needing to function as a human thermocycler. I can imagine that must have been super frustrating and um, super gratifying when the thermocycler was delivered. It was. There was cheering in the hallway. So what lessons can we draw from the advent of PCR? That's an interesting question. There actually is a major lab and life lesson that emerges from the story of PCR. By far, looking back on it, Carey's tenacity, his belief in his thoughts and his experimental results in the face of really overwhelming initial skepticism and near hostility, teaches us to be champions of our ideas, even in the face of adversity. And of course, sometimes a bit of luck and timing is important. You know, think about TAC DNA polymerase there, waiting in the wings to make PCR easier. And lastly, technology is here to make our lives simpler, as a thermocycler certainly did for us. But I think the main theme here is not giving up on something you believe in. In a beautiful case of real poetic justice, Science Magazine, one of the premier scientific journals in the United States that had soundly rejected Carey's first PCR paper in 1986, would just three years later declare PCR the molecule of the year. And from Carey's initial thoughts that night driving up through the Redwoods to his being awarded the Nobel Prize for Chemistry in 1993 for developing PCR was only 10 years That speaks to not letting negativism stand in your way and believing in yourself and your ideas. It absolutely does. Thank you so much for joining us today, Becky. It's been a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Be sure to tune in next time when I'll be joined by Sabah Ul-Hassan, a PhD candidate at the University of California, Merced, as we discuss the import of building mutually beneficial symbiotic relationships in science.